Welcome to Pod Save America. This is Tommy Vitor. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the latest of our interview series with the 2020 presidential candidates. Today's discussion is with entrepreneur, philanthropist, Andrew Yang. He stopped by the Crooked Media Studios on Wednesday. We spent about an hour talking about his proposal for a universal basic income. We talked about a whole bunch of political questions that were going on. And because it is my obsession, uh, we did some foreign policy at the end. He's a very thoughtful, good guy. He wore a hat that said math on it for the duration. So check out the video. He actually gave me a signed version of the math hat, which I believe Love It is wearing around the office. Um, Thanks for tuning in. Give this one a listen. And if you haven't subscribed to Pod Save the World, I just I don't know what's wrong with you. I need you to pause this thing, reopen the app, subscribe to Pod Save the World, go back to Pod Save America, listen to Andrew Yang. That's all I need. And uh, if you're uh, a member of the Yang Gang and you are angry at anything in this interview, please tweet at John Lovett. Okay, here's the conversation. I would like to welcome to Crooked Media HQ, Andrew Yang, a, a entrepreneur running for president, the Democratic nomination in 2020. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Tommy. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, straight from Iowa or you've been here a couple of days? Um, about, I've been in LA for about a day. Okay, cool. Well, it's good to have you. Um, let's jump right into it. So your candidacy has really been like laser focused on, on a big central idea, uh, which is the need for universal basic income. Um, and I want to get to that in detail, but I was hoping we could start with how you arrived at the need for UBI through your work at Venture for America. Can you talk to us about what that was and what you did? Yeah, very much so. So uh, I started my career as an unhappy corporate attorney uh, and then worked in startups. I started my own business that flopped, and then I worked at another startup in, in software and then became the head of an education company uh, that did very well and was uh, bought by a, a bigger company in, in 2009. And in the wake of the financial crisis, I thought, wow, we have so many talented people doing the same things in the same places, Wall Street, uh, uh, Silicon Valley consulting. And I thought, well, we need more people generating jobs and businesses in places like Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans. So I spent the last seven years helping hundreds of entrepreneurs create jobs in those cities as part of this organization that I started, Venture for America. And it was during my time in these cities that I realized that we were automating away jobs much more quickly than we were creating them, particularly where the Midwest and the South were concerned. And if you look at 2016, when Donald Trump became president, he won Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all states that we'd uh, automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in. And working in technology, you know that we're going to do the same thing to millions of retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, truck driving jobs. Mm -hmm. So when you, you realize that we're in the midst of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of our country, and the third inning has brought us Donald Trump, then you think, okay, what can we do about that? What's what, what's a realistic countermeasure? And when I've uh, dug into it, universal basic income was the most powerful uh, response that we could adopt. And really, universal basic income is the reason I'm running for president. So I've listened to a ton of your interviews in preparation for this. Everyone includes a part where you just scare the shit out of everybody about how automation is coming. Well, I'm good at that. Can we can we just let rip on that? I want to hear it. I want to see it in person. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So the five most common job categories in the United States are administrative and clerical, retail, food service and food prep, 
truck driving and transportation, and manufacturing. Those five jobs uh, uh, comprise about half of all American jobs. They're all going to shrink very, very fast. 30% of American malls and stores are going to close in the next four years because of Amazon sucking up $20 billion in business. And the average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making $10 an hour. So if you think about her mall or store closing, what's her next move going to be? Driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states in this country. Mm-hmm. There are 3.5 million truck drivers, average age 49, 94% male. And so if robot trucks start hitting the highways in 5 to 10 years, what does that mean for them as well as the over 7 million Americans who work in truck stops, motels, diners, and retail establishments right. that rely on the truckers getting out and eating? Google just recently demoed AI that can do the work of an average call center worker, and there are two and a half million call center workers in the United States. They make 14 bucks an hour, average education high school. So when you start digging in, you realize that we're going to automate away the most common jobs in our society, and we're already in the midst of doing so. Uh, I studied economics, and when you look in a textbook, what happens what to, uh, to four million manufacturing workers who lose their jobs, the textbook says they get retrained, reskilled, find new jobs and all as well. Yeah. But in real life, Almost half of those workers left the workforce and never worked again. Hmm. And of that group, about half filed for disability. Mm-hmm. And then you saw surges and suicides and drug overdoses in those communities to the point where it's brought down America's life expectancy for the last three years in a row, which is unheard of. The last time American life expectancy declined for three years in a row was the Spanish flu of 1918. It's been 100 years, and it's highly unusual for life expectancy in a developed country to decline even one year, mm-hmm. let alone three. So... If that's what happened to the manufacturing workers, it's clear that that's what's going to happen to the retail workers, call center workers, and on and on. And it's not just blue-collar workers. Bookkeepers, accountants, insurance agents, financial advisors, pharmacists, there are many white-collar jobs that will also be upended Mm -hmm. by AI. And you're already seeing this in many organizations. I spoke at at a group of CEOs in New York, and I asked them how many are looking at having AI replace thousands of back office workers. And out of 70 CEOs, 70 hands went up. Wow. So this is not just an us versus them thing. This is a human thing. And we need to wake up to the fact that it is not immigrants, it is technology, and then have meaningful solutions that will actually help America manage this transition. Yeah. So uh, was that scary? Did it work? That's Yeah, that was pretty scary. I mean, and it's also, you know, I, I think people maybe hear... Okay, robot trucks are coming. I mean, wasn't that one of the first companies that Uber acquired was a, a auto to automate? Yeah. Yes, right. So, like, this is something people are putting big money into. Oh yeah, the savings behind automating freight are estimated to be 168 billion dollars per year, and that's not just labor savings. That's fuel efficiency, equipment utilization, because mm-hmm. a robot truck never needs to stop. A human truck driver has to get out after 14 hours and go to sleep. The robot truck never needs to stop. It would also save about 4,000 lives a year uh, because that's how many people die in accidents with human truck drivers right now. So if you have $168 billion a year in potential savings, yeah. then that would justify investing tens of billions a year to try and make it happen. Right, right. Um, okay. So let's go just with the basic question. Like, What is the universal basic income plan you're proposing, the Freedom Dividend? Well, the Freedom Dividend is a universal basic income plan where every American adult gets $1,000 a month starting at age 18 until the day they die. So every American adult gets $1,000, uh, and then you get it. You can do whatever you want, $12,000 a year, and it continues until you expire. So I want to start by saying, like, I really respect and appreciate the fact that you aren't you aren't just naming the problem of automation, because I think every candidate out there is like, automation is coming, people are going to be displaced, then we pivot back to 
so we need more retraining and all the things you've recommended that failed. I have some questions about the way the freedom dividend works, if you don't mind indulging me, because I'm, I'm learning about this on the fly. So let's say I'm a truck driver. I make 50 grand a year. Yep. I get laid off because of automation. Yep. I get a freedom dividend worth $12,000 a year. Aren't I still in a pretty tough spot economically? Oh, yeah. But right now, so I'm running for president. I become president in 2021. The dividends go out in 2022. And then the truck driver looks up and says, wow, apparently my job's going to disappear pretty soon. It does, it's not gone right now. So then I get $12,000 a year, but I haven't lost my job yet. So maybe not being a total idiot, like, you know, President Yang's like, hey, your job's going to disappear. You get a $12,000. Right, right. So I save it. And then... When my job does disappear three or four years later, I've got 50000 in savings. President Yang has appointed a trucker transition czar to take some of that $168 billion a year and, and put it towards new resources and opportunities for me. Uh, and when I go home, having lost my job, at least now it's not an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that I'm going to fear for my very existence. I'm not going to take my gun and riot. Uh, because tens of thousands of truckers are ex-military. And right now, if you said, look, you're about to lose your life savings and you're making 50000 it's going to go to zero, then you'd expect some very terrible uh, uh, catastrophic uh, type of reaction to that. Whereas, in- Like a m- militia force? Like what, what, what do you mean ex-military? What, what are we talking about? Well, dozens of truckers in Indianapolis uh, protested several months ago by doing something called a slow roll. So they started driving their truck slowly and uh, gummed up traffic. Mm-hmm. The, the entire highway starts going 45 miles an hour. Now, what they were protesting was the digital monitoring of their driving time. They didn't okay. like the fact they have a timer. So if you take three and a half million truckers who've, uh, in many cases, sunk their life savings into a small fleet of trucks, and then you say, hey, you're now competing against robot trucks that don't need to stop, uh, then to me, it's entirely reasonable that some of those truckers will park their trucks in a highway in a place that, that's going to really uh, screw things up. Um, or even worse, they'll like park their truck, bring their guns out and say, you know, the robot truck should not be uh, allowed uh, because in this case, they feel like their very uh, existence might be at stake. So we're thinking like a, a post-automation Mad Max trucker scenario. I mean, like you're worried about like actual violence, not just people losing their jobs, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, you can see right now that, uh, again, you've had these record levels of suicides and drug overdoses in response to the decimation of manufacturing jobs. It's only a matter of time before some of that despair ends up uh, becoming externalized. Um, and that, that would include violence. If you look at the first industrial revolution at the turn of the century, there were mass riots that killed dozens of people and caused the equivalent of billions of dollars worth of damage. And this industrial revolution is projected to be two to three times faster and more severe than that one. Mm -hmm. So if you're into history and you say, okay, this is what happened last time, and this time will be two to three times worse, then it would almost be surprising if there were not some form of violence. Okay. Um, Another question I had about the freedom dividend. So my understanding is it doesn't come on top of other welfare programs. You have to sort of choose one or the other. You have to opt in. So if you're getting Social Security disability insurance or food stamps, you have a choice between the existing welfare state and the freedom dividend. I guess my question is, why wouldn't you want to help the poorest people more? Like, why structure this so Jeff Bezos gets the same money as a homeless guy? 
Yeah. So uh, one of the lessons we took was from Alaska, which has had this petroleum dividend in effect for almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. And it's not means tested. Everyone in Alaska just gets between one and two thousand dollars a year. No questions asked. And because of that, it's politically very popular um, and everyone sees it as just like uh, something that they get as an Alaskan. And so if you want to get people in America excited about the dividend, then having it be uh, distributed across the board uh, to every citizen seems like something that would become universally popular. I'm all for taking steps to try and see to those who have uh, a greater need in different ways. And the freedom dividend is not intended to solve all problems. Uh, you know, it, it would channel tens of billions of dollars into the hands of uh, Americans every day. And anyone listening to this, you know, $1,000 a month would be a huge difference maker in many, many people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, there are other things that we should do to help those uh, who need, frankly, even more than any amount of money. I mean, there mm -hmm. are certain programs that you need to have in place. Uh, money is not a cure-all. Um, but this, to me, is the, the best way to provide a floor for everyone. And then we can start attacking some of the other systemic issues of poverty in different ways. You know, but wouldn't there's some argument for just sort of like finding some tiering, say it cuts off after $250,000 a year or $500,000? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying in that if you make a benefit universal, everyone gets it. They're less likely to resent it. But I feel like you could maybe manage the cost because you're i've heard you talk about it costing maybe two trillion or 1.8 trillion a year for the freedom dividend yeah fully implemented yeah i mean that's pretty significant right yeah it's significant though you know and you and i know this it's that unfortunately there aren't even that many uh rich americans such that it doesn't even bring the, <laughs> the, the cost down because of the mm -hmm. way uh, our income's distributed sure. but one of the great things about not having means testing is that you destigmatize it so it's not like oh I get it. You don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're giving it to me somehow. There's no rich to poor transfer. So if it's truly universal, if it's uh, truly says something that everyone enjoys, then you get rid of any stigma and you also get rid of any monitoring requirement or need to try and underreport your income or change in circumstances. Then no, there's no issue around timing of payments. So I love the EITC. The EITC has been great at fighting poverty, but 30% of families that should get the EITC don't get it mm -hmm. because of various administrative hurdles. And there's also this massive timing of payments problem because if I lose my job this year, maybe the EITC will give me some extra money next year when it's tax time, but like I needed the money right now. Right now, yeah. Um, so my understanding is the primary way you finance the freedom dividend is through a value-added tax on tech companies like, say, Amazon. But a VAT tax or a sales tax, they tend to be the really the, the most regressive form of taxation. Companies tend to pass those costs along to consumers. I mean, those costs are likely to disproportionately hurt people who are poorer. So I ask my question, why finance it that way? So in a vacuum, like a value-added tax does tend to be regressive because poor people just spend a higher proportion of their yeah. uh, buying power on uh, consumer staples. And there are things you can do where you can tailor it. You can exempt certain consumer staples. You can have the VAT be higher on luxury goods. Uh, in this case, because we're taking every dollar from the value-added tax and putting it directly into Americans' hands and then adding another $2 on top of it, um, then it, it would be the opposite of regressive. It would increase the buying power for approximately the bottom like 90% um, of Americans who aren't making and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. But if you're the bottom 90%, I mean, let's say you're, you're on welfare, you're getting food stamps, so you're not taking the freedom dividend, and then there's a VAT on a whole bunch of things you buy, isn't that going to hurt you? Yeah. Like uh, in, in, in certain situations, we'd have to do more. So the easiest thing to do would be to take 
And so I have a physician principle of do no harm. Sure. Last thing I want to do is stick it to someone who's relying upon um, benefits or a fixed income. Yeah. And so the, the easiest thing to do is just to say, hey, if you're on one of these programs or benefits, we're just going to, to scale up your benefits to a point where the VAT is immaterial to you. Got it. Um, so I guess here's probably the most important question I have is, I mean, how do you think you can get this passed? Because I think, not to be cynical, but... You've you been know, in government for a while, man. It's all right. Mitch McConnell, <laughs> Mitch McConnell's a pretty cynical guy. Uh, you know, he's got his wife, like, cutting deals for him in Kentucky. Uh, that's madness. I know. I couldn't believe that stuff. It's, it drives me crazy. Um, but so, you know, a lot of Republicans say this is welfare, this is socialism, whatever. I mean, what's your plan to get this through? I guess you're also talking about proposing Medicare for all. I mean, the cost of both is going to give people some sticker shock. Yeah, so this is the the fun part of it is that when I'm president in 2021, the Democrats, thanks to you all, thank you, Pod Save America, uh, will be so pumped to have gotten Donald Trump out of there. We'll all be dancing a jig, uh, you know, okay. in, in, in D.C. And so everyone will be super excited about the dividend because it's going to get more money into the hands of uh, everyday Americans and make uh, families and children stronger and healthier. And then on the conservative side, they're going to look at this and be like, wait a minute, this is actually a big win for uh, rural areas and red states that have been um, decimated by automation. Uh, and a lot of their constituents will say, what I don't like is uh, government making my decisions, but this is actually the freedom dividend. This is pro-economic freedom. And so there'll be at least some uh, conservatives who will look at this and say, well, <clears throat> Alaska passed something just like this, and Alaska is a deep red conservative state. That was a Republican governor. There, There's uh, some um, native appeal on the conservative side because it feels like it's somehow uh, in, increasing people's economic autonomy. Now, that's not going to work on everyone. I mean, obviously, there'll be some Republicans who are like, I hate this. It's like, mm -hmm. a, you know, a massive government handout, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't need 81% of Congress. We only need 51% uh, because this is just a bill like any other. And so when the dividend goes out, then Americans will be so pumped that the government did something that actually changes people's lives in such a direct, uh, concrete way that then we'll be able to hopefully get some other big things done, too. I mean, I feel like you're a thoughtful logical, rational human being. Well, trying, thanks, man. Trying, trying to apply those principles to a party that has lost its mind. I mean, they're likely to call this like the death panel dividend, right? Like they did with Obamacare. Mitch McConnell prioritized defeating Barack Obama in the reelection above saving the economy, giving people... Oh, health. yeah. You know, so like, too, yeah. Th that, that's where my cynicism comes from, is like, I, I just wonder how we will get Republicans to change their mind or if you thought through like what it would take politically to try to bring people over. Well, one thing I found is that cash is hard to demonize. True. <laughs> it's it's like, like, like if you say, hey, I'm going to um, change your healthcare, be like, oh, death panels, doctors, like it's going to screw it up. But it's like, hey, the Asian man wants to give you money. Um, it's a little trickier to be like, oh, the money's going to kill you. It's like, like food stamps have gonna... been demonized, right? And stigmatized. They have been. And that's one reason why the dividend is so powerful is because the food stamps, it's like uh, it's like something for other people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you go to folks in various parts of the country and go, oh, they're getting something. They're pulling one over on you. This time it's like everyone gets it. Chill out. It's going to be great. Uh, and I'm already getting uh, people from, you know, the like the conservative end of the spectrum and libertarians and independents. Folks in Iowa uh, and Ohio have said to me that they uh, – actually hoped they were getting someone like me when they voted for Donald Trump, which I take is like a very mixed bag because that part of me is like, oh, no. <laughs> but, that, but that part of me was like, oh, well, you're going to vote for me. I guess that's a win. <laughs> um, 
All right, I'm going to move away from UBI, if that's okay. Um, no, we must talk about UBI this entire... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, look, <laughs> it's an interesting topic. I learned a lot about it. So you, uh, you were at the uh, Iowa Democratic Party Hall of Fame dinner this weekend, along with eight, yes, 18 of your best candidate friends. Um, I noticed that you kind of you dinged Biden for missing the dinner. Uh, you repeated that criticism in a tweet today. I guess he was at his granddaughter's high school graduation. Is that sort of like a weird thing to attack him for? Well, uh, so when I, I first did it, and you look at the, the quote-unquote attack, it was like, you know, a joke. It was like, I guess Joe Biden really doesn't like to travel. Right. Um, and it, it just struck me as really jarring that there were literally 19 candidates there and everyone but the front runner. <laughs> right. Sure. And, and it was something of like this elephant in the room. So I just said like, you know, hey, like, uh, I guess Joe Biden doesn't uh, really like right. to travel very much. Um, and then, um, and then you know, uh, from there... Uh, he said something about how, uh, like, he has values uh, of a different kind that led him to attend his. And I wouldn't begrudge anyone, like, making a choice not to attend an event. But there was, like, this implication there that was, like, he had somehow, like, uh, um, made this decision that the other 19 candidates, like, had not made. <laughs> and so I pointed out, I was like, look, 19 candidates, like, 19 candidates have families. Like, we mm-hmm. all are going to miss stuff. Um, and so it's fine if you decide to, to miss stuff too, but, uh, you know, it's like making it seem like it was a, um, a value judgment on his part that other people weren't making, I thought was like, you know, a little bit unfortunate, truly. We have seen recently, uh, that abortion rights have just been under assault by the Trump administration, by the courts, by states. Have you thought about how you would ensure that reproductive rights are protected across the country? Well, uh, I think it's, crazy that in 2019 we have states passing laws that are bringing us back to the stone age in terms of women's reproductive rights uh so i want to protect women's reproductive rights at the highest possible levels and there's nothing in the constitution about the number of supreme court justices i think we should very very much consider increasing the number of justices past nine and appointing justices that would uh, protect women's reproductive rights there's really nothing off the table when it comes to protecting women's reproductive rights uh for me so your so your the primary goal would be to really think about packing the courts as soon as possible and, and, and preserving Roe or preventing it from being overturned in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And what about sort of enshrining Roe in legislation? Is that something you think we should pursue? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, the right move, too. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I understand that Americans have different feelings uh, on this, but I'm very much pro-women's reproductive rights. I do not think it's the role of government to be curbing that. The uh, Trump administration talks relentlessly about immigration. If you're the nominee, I imagine that will be the attack every day. There will be some caravan headed to your house or the border or wherever, you know, whatever bullshit they make up. Um, (laughs) But like that aside, you know, there is also a massive surge of of migrants coming to the U.S. from uh, so-called Central Triangle countries, um, El Salvador, Guatemala, et cetera. What are you, would you do to reduce the flow of asylum seekers and fix what I think people in both parties view to be a, a, a broken system? Yeah, so the, the first thing to do is try and adequately resource the system we have. Because if, um, uh, if you go near the process, you see that we have a massive shortage of not just judges to administer asylum cases, but case managers and facilities and mm-hmm. um, uh, and border officers. Uh, there, there was one thing I saw where there are something like hundreds of unfilled job openings because it's just hard for them to hire 
um, at, at, in these stations. So one, if you have a process, you have to adequately try and um, resource and implement it. But the big thing uh, there, and this is one reason why cutting back international aid was so so destructive. It's like, obviously, if you're going to try and get people to migrate less uh, out of an area, then you try and support the um the existing government and way of life so that people feel like they don't need to migrate hundreds mm-hmm. uh, of miles over dangerous conditions for for another opportunity that they have an opportunity closer to them. So you're thinking about increasing foreign aid as part of an immigration policy? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be uh, the right thing to do. Um, so I've noticed like as I was prepping for this, I, I, your voice was in my head for hours. Most of the I'm drive sorry. in Iowa, <laughs> I, it, was, it was magnificent, frankly. Um, but I mean, I, I've noticed you've done a lot of outlets, non-traditional stops in the Democratic primary circuit, let's say, like Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin. So there have been some reports that are unrelated to you and your candidacy that suggest that some of those guys are a gateway via YouTube to more radical fringe outlets like Infowars or like worse. Um, does that worry you at all that that some of these guys like the Ben Shapiros uh, could provide a way for people to find that kind of content? Or is that YouTube's problem? I mean, how do you think about it? You know, it's it's a really profound question and it's becoming all the more uh, pressing um, in, in an age where White nationalism and, and tribalism are surging uh, into very, you know, like like tragic, uh, uh, murderous behaviors. Um, and uh, there's a guy named Jaron Lanier, is one of the pioneers of the internet, and he said something that stuck with me. He said that the internet is more powerful at conducting negative ideas and sentiments than it is positive ones. Mm-hmm. So the the YouTube um, controversy on clamping down, I mean, it's so core. Because if you have toxic ideas that are out there, they, they can spread like wildfire and end up um, like leading people to uh, terrible ideologies. The conversations I had with various thinkers, I mean, as you say, it's like, I mean, uh, one of the, the things I'm trying to do, and this also being very candid, um, uh, starting out, there weren't a lot of mainstream press outlets that were having me. Sure. <laughs> so someone's like, oh, is this a strategy? It's like, actually, my strategy is just to try and reach Americans. And and if there was like someone yeah. who wanted to have me on. Um, I do think that it's important, particularly if you're going to try and win a general election to try and reach people at different points in the um, political spectrum. I certainly would never um, go on a, a program where it was like where I thought it was like a direct gateway to, to hateful ideologies. Um, but this is one of the most pressing problems of our time is to figure out how we can uh, manage freedom of speech and First Amendment rights with the fact that, unfortunately, the Internet is highly conductive for uh, toxic and poisonous ideologies. Yeah. So I, I, I think I've read that you don't agree with, I think, Elizabeth Warren's proposal, for example, to break up some of the biggest technology companies, the Facebooks, the Googles. Why is that? Am I right first? And, and why is that? No, you're, you're generally right. And this is not to say I'm against breaking up tech companies, because some of them you should break up certain parts of their businesses. And it has gone really haywire in Silicon Valley, where the primary business model is to get bought by one of the behemoths now. It's not like build a company for 20 yeah. years and yeah. you know, stand the test of time. Yeah, it's just like, hey, if I become a, a, enough of a pest, then someone will throw some money at me and I'll get like like absorbed into the, the Borg. Innovation, competition at its best, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are massive excesses. We should have some of these companies uh, get, quote unquote, broken up in some respects. Uh, the problem is that assuming that if I break up Amazon into four mini Amazons, that then competition will take hold and that will improve the situation, uh, doesn't take into account some of the dynamics of technology marketplaces. So the 
the comparison I make is that no one wants to use the fourth best navigation app and no one is binging anything. I was binging your name all weekend. Well, then you're the, the only, only one, way man. I found the, that's Bing, why that, all my questions The CEO of Bing is like... <laughs> Who is the CEO of Bing? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's, I think it's still a division of Microsoft. Okay, got it. So saying like, hey, like, are there quasi-monopolies that need to be curbed? Yes. If I break them up into four um, mini versions of themselves, it probably does not solve the problem. And one of the problems that I cite is that right now our young people are in a mental health crisis uh, with the anxiety and depression coincident with smartphone adoption and social media apps. Uh, and my friend Tristan Harris says that we are the smartest engineers in the country uh, turning s- supercomputers into slot machines and dopamine delivery devices for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say, hey, now Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram have separate ownership structures, does that make our kids less depressed? Probably no impact. And so the, the break them up solution to me uh, is not necessarily digging in and solving the true problems that technology is causing. Sometimes break up, breaking them up, having them divest parts of the business would be the right solution. But in other cases, uh, you'd want to adopt different types of approaches. All right. I'm going to ask Jeeves that answer later and see if it's right. Um, but like, you know, you look at a Facebook, right? They acquired Instagram. They acquired uh, WhatsApp. So suddenly they are, by some major order of magnitude, the biggest messaging platform on the planet. Do you think a, a, a company like that well, let me ask this differently. Do you think we should update our antitrust laws oh, to address yeah. something like that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so price is the wrong framework for right. antitrust because a lot of the stuff they're like, it's free. gouged you like I wouldn't dream of it. Men <laughs> just want to give it to you and then like absorb all your data right. and then the right. rest of it. So, um, so certainly we need an updated framework. And what I've been saying is we can't have 20th century solutions to 21st century problems. And having a price and competition framework is a 20th century solution. And those are not the problems we face. Why do you hate the penny? Um, because someone threw one at me when I was a kid, and I swore I would get all of the pennies out of the world. Now, um, it's it's that there's actually uh, like there are several economic um, and environmental rationales to get rid of the penny. Really? Like we we actually spend more than one cent uh, per penny on its production. Yeah, that seems stupid. Yeah, we lose. Uh, I think it's something along an order of magnitude, maybe like. Uh, like $25 million a year making pennies. What's the argument against getting rid of the penny then? Uh, inertia. Uh, and, and that's one of the greatest things that's happening in this country is that inertia is taking over a lot of things where, like, why do we have lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices when that clearly makes no sense anymore? Like, we should change it to 18-year term limits. Why haven't we? Inertia. So why do we have pennies? Inertia. And, you know, one of the themes of my campaign is that we have to examine things and say, look, we can improve that. We totally should. Also, yeah. pennies are bad for the environment because extracting copper, like it, it, you know, it, it costs energy. Yeah. Well, you, if you hate inertia, you are going to hate the government. <laughs> um, all right, can nice, I ask you, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> yeah, right. Man, like there's no more annoying question than what you say, why do we do this? And the answer is because that's how we've always done it. Just like, come on. Well, I mean, I I admire you and your team so much. I mean, you you, did, you fought the fight. You know, you, you spent time in Iowa and, and like helping uh, get Obama elected and served in government. And you got a sense. Like, I have friends who worked the administration, the Obama administration, and they saw what was going on in D.C. and they were like, "Holy cow!" Like the the best of them were frustrated. Um, you know, and and like I'm definitely ready to enter the frustration zone. Uh, you know, it, it, when I become president. Um, with the knowledge that a lot of the stuff that we're going to try and get done, it's going to be like a massive challenge uh, because of the nature of the institutions. Yeah. Um, 
All right. I'm going to close with some foreign policy, if that's all right. Sure. So President Trump um, is a fantastic president. He's done a number on basically every alliance we have since no, taking office. Right, yeah. He's called into question the value of NATO. He wouldn't reaffirm Article 5. He's undercut the Japanese and the South Koreans and his negotiations with North Korea. Have you thought about how you would undo that damage? Is there like a 100-day plan to try to fix some of the damage that's been done? Well, I'm the fourth candidate after uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and one other to sign the uh, End the Forever War pledge, um, which is that we need to try and um, push the power to declare war back to Congress where mm-hmm. it belongs in the Constitution. And having that as like my, my one of my first acts, then the rest of the world would be like, oh, I get it. This president is different than the last one, <laughs> that, that I'm quite, kind of the uh, opposite. And so the, the second thing I would do is then go to our longest standing partners and say, America's open for business again, uh, that that guy's gone, it's this guy, and this guy wants to work with you, wants to rebuild longstanding relationships uh, and make it seem that we're reliable, we'll be here for the, the test of time. One of the things I've said is that our foreign policy reflects how we're doing at home. To me, Donald Trump's our president because our way of life has been disintegrating for years. You know, life expectancy, uh, income and affordability, mental health crisis, like there's so much despair and suffering and anger anger in this country so much so that we ended up with this guy as president and then he's going around breaking partnerships and alliances around the the world and everyone's like what the heck's going on with the u.s so um, my goal is to be the opposite of donald trump the opposite of donald trump is an asian man who likes math Mm -hmm. and says that on your hat it does say on my hat and then it doesn't say that entire phrase that'd be a very long (laughs) long phrase to have on the hat um, but then the, the rest of the world, if you can imagine President Yang coming in, like the rest of the world would be like, wow, like America has a very different leadership uh, style and they'll find that I'm um, someone that they can work with. Would you repeal the AUMF? Yes, I would. That's one of the, the things that to me has been such a like a, a concession of power on the part of Congress. And so it should be in Congress's hand whether or not we go to war, have any sort of military intervention. And one pipe dream of mine, I know this one's going to be tough. Not only do I want Congress to have the ability to declare war, I also want one adult child of Congress to have to participate in whatever military action we take. Because to me, there's something fundamental that if you're going to send uh, America's young men and women to, into battle, at least one uh, one of your kids should also be going. Yeah. Well, so knowing that you want to return that authority to where it belongs to Congress. Um, I'm wondering when you think it's appropriate to use military force, because, for example, Obama used military force in Libya to prevent what he thought would be like a, a catastrophic loss of civilian life in Benghazi. Um, that I think the near term objective was achieved, but the long term situation in Libya is a mess. Uh, he was criticized for not responding fast enough in Syria after Assad used chemical weapons, the so-called red line debate. I mean, like, how do you view when it's appropriate for the U.S. to use military force to intervene? Well, well, this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have Congress actively involved with this, is that if uh, the people of the United States and the Congress agree that it's uh, the right thing to do to to intervene militarily, then that to me is like a, a huge uh, source of uh, popular judgment, like in a way that's, to me, more powerful than if uh, if an individual, even the president of the United States, thinks that it's the right thing to do. Um, in terms of principles, if you can avoid catastrophic loss of life uh, in, in a way that doesn't bog us down for years on end with an indeterminate timeline, then that to me is like a, a more appealing 
uh, use of military force. But even then, I would push it to Congress and say, look, guys, this is what I think we should do. Like, do I have the go ahead? Um, because that's the way the Constitution uh, set it up. But I mean, Congress is a bunch of cowards who don't want to take votes that are difficult. The population writ large is understandably and rightly reticent to get involved. But World War One, World War Two, if there's not presidential leadership, we're probably not entering those wars. Right? I mean, like, they're going to look to you, regardless of your efforts to restore their authority. You know what I mean? So I just don't know if you, if you, if there's a conflict in recent history, you think that was just, that made sense, that was appropriate. You know, to, to me, the times I get most excited about it is if you feel like you can help maintain the integrity of a society in some way, uh, or if there's, it's not quite like humanitarian intervention, because I know we're talking about military action. <laughs> but, but, but Well, I mean, you know, you could debate. Sorry, continue. No, no, no. Like, uh, that if there is a way that we can essentially prevent, like, a, a collapsing society or a failed state, um, those are the situations I, I'm most drawn to. Uh, and I would be very happy to champion that cause in Congress and say, look, if we do this, we can help preserve the integrity of this society in a way that's going to end up being very positive, not just for them, but for American interests over the long term or globally. Uh, I would love to make that case. So when I hear, when I imagine a near-term failed state, I think Venezuela. Yeah. Is uh, that an example of someplace where you think it might be appropriate? Particularly if there is a, a constituency in Venezuela that welcomes, uh, you know, that that sort of move. Like, uh, you know, unilaterally, I would not want to do it because I do not think it's the United States place to decide, uh, you know, the regimes of, of other countries if we can at all um, uh, prevent being that sort of uh, outside force. Uh, but if there was a group in Venezuela, which there may well be, that says, look, we'd actually welcome your intervention because um, we need to try and have... Uh, some sort of infrastructure while we establish our new government or, or mm -hmm. something along those lines. And I'd love to to work with them on that. Chris, how do you think about diplomacy? I mean, do you, are you sort of in the, I'll talk to anyone anywhere camp like Obama was? I mean, do, or let me say it this way. Do you think Trump's negotiations with North Korea have been appropriate or successful? <laughs> well, I, I don't think his exact negotiations have been uh, the way I'd go about it. But I do agree with um the principle that it's very hard to get things done if you're not willing to talk to someone or engage them. And I also am not the sort who thinks if you talk to someone, you're somehow endorsing uh, their um, government or, or their, their approach to things. Uh, so my, uh, my first position would be we should be engaging directly, even with people that we might consider adversaries. So if you, if you win, would you re-engage in those talks with Kim Jong-un in North Korea? I mean, the, clearly, like, the, the problem he's trying to solve is very real. And in fact, it's gotten considerably worse since he took office because the DIA estimates they're making a new nuke a month. So it's something we're going to, it's going to come to a head at some point. I'm just curious how you would approach what past presidents have viewed as really like an existential threat to the U.S. Yeah. And, and you know, like my sister-in-law is in Seoul right now. I mean, this is something where, you know, it's like I have some Close personal, to home, yeah. yeah. To me, a lot of these actors are going to do whatever they think is in their best interest. And what we have to avoid is we have to avoid a situation where they think stockpiling nuclear weapons and acting um, erratically uh, is in their best interest. And, and the best way to show them that it's in their best interest to, uh, to scale down and, and possibly give up some of these weapons is to engage with them and say, look, what's it going to take? Uh, you know, right, because right now, unfortunately, some of them think if I don't have these weapons, the U.S. would come in and um, oust me tomorrow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, if that's the situation they're in, then it gets more dangerous. Last question. Um, the New York Times wrote a piece suggesting you are too nice to be president. 
or to run for president. So I was hoping you would roast me or somebody in the room, just say something really shitty, pick your poison. There's like eight people over there. You could, you can go for. I don't like the look of that one. Um, <laughs> no. What do you What do you make of it? What do you make of a, a political process so cynical that someone could be could be too nice to run for president? Well, I mean, I appreciated the headline. I was like, "Wow, I'm a nice guy," because um, the uh, the the approach I have to the campaign and in life is just like we have to solve the problems that are that are um, uh, making people's lives uh, miserable, and, and in this case, threatened to tear us apart. Um, and so I, I don't particularly like to demonize people because I don't find it to be helpful or, or productive. Um, but no one runs for president unless they have a deep uh, fighting spirit, I would say. And you've been on the trail. You know what I mean? Like you have to go out there and make the case mm-hmm. um, every day. Um, plus, I think I'm a bigger asshole than, than, than that particular journalist thought. Okay. <laughs> so it's like I'd love for them to – like if they just saw me, you know, like uh, – um, like in other circumstances, they might be like, I take it back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll find a, a chance to correct them. Uh, Andrew Yang, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, Tommy. 